1 Peter uh, 4, 12 through 19. It's on page um, 1016. If you guys wouldn't mind standing for the word of God, that would be awesome. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is a time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. So I'm going to ask that you just pray with me in this way. What are some action steps that we can that we can pray for in light of just the good news report that we received um, in the realm of just missions, in light of preparing our mind to hear God's word proclaimed? I'm going to ask that you pray with me in two ways. Um, one thing that you can do as an action step in light of what you heard is come tonight, tonight from 530 to 6.30 in the church here. What we're going to do is we're going to be praying for the people of Italy. Um, we have a couple who's going to be going to Italy on a vision trip, trying to flesh out God. Is this really where you're calling us as a church, calling us as, as this couple, the Campbells, go? So we're going to um, hold a prayer night tonight specifically for, for that, and we invite you to come to that. Um, another action step is this. Um, tomorrow night um, at our house, um, Tara and I's house, we're going to host um, a prayer night the giving of monies is good, but as we give monies, we don't want to think we've just somehow reached you know, max, maximum good by, by giving monies. We give monies to see King Jesus' kingdom advance, and then we bend our knee in prayer so that way we can beseech the living God to actually go forward and use the people who are going to be on the receiving end of these monies so that they will go and proclaim the gospel of Jesus in their spheres of influence. And that's part of what we're going to do tomorrow night. Um, this is a regular routine we're going to try to start building for at least now. We're going to do this once a month, the second Monday of every month. And so I'm going to ask you, think about this. Set up your schedule. What does it look like for you to come to your house and just go, my, my week is busy. Yes, I understand. I, I may not have much time. I can only come for a little bit. Maybe I can't do all of it. But what does it look like to set aside time to say, God, I understand the importance of prayer. And we're going to devote ourselves to talking to our Lord God who seeks to see his will done, and he does it through the, through the prayers of the saints. And so those are two ways that you guys can think about um, as action steps as we turn our mind to praying right now for worship through the word. So why don't you guys pray with me, okay? God, you are worthy to be praised. Worthy to be praised because you use your people to advance the mission and the boundaries of Jesus' kingdom. You are worthy to be praised because you raise up and you call up people who see a need to travel 
to other countries to proclaim the gospel where there is no gospel influence. You are worthy to be praised because you just raise up people who, who are not going to other countries, but who are called to, to be a light, a witness, to be salt in the earth, proclaiming Jesus just to their neighbors, to their family, to their co-workers, and that is just an equally awesome task. And you call them to pray as well. So God, I pray through the preaching of your word right now that you would stir our hearts, that you would encourage us, you would draw our minds to the good news of the gospel, which is Jesus is a Savior, we are sinners, and through Christ's suffering, he brings us to God. God, we love you and we thank you. We ask that you do a great and mighty work in the lives and in the hearts of this people here today, in the lives and the hearts of all your believers. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Go ahead and leave your... uh, Copy of Scripture open to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Um, a couple weeks ago, I gave you guys a story about um, um, an episode in my life when I was in college, and that made my, my mind drift um, this past week to um, another episode where this happened several times, but it revolved around a college roommate of mine whose name was Mike. Um, now, you meet several different people in life, the way they react to different situations, and I know no other word to describe Mike other than Mike was like the epitome of jumpy. Um, the guy was like always on edge, man. Um, and I, I don't know why, but I mean, he was just had sort of just, you know, buggy eyes, and he was just always just, you know, I mean, no matter what you did, uh, the guy was always on edge. And it always seemed to be work itself out like this. So we shared a dorm room, and inside our dorm room, um, he had the far corner of the dorm room. And whenever you'd walk into the room, most people recognize when someone else is walking into a room, whether it's just the noise of the door opening or just, you know, your backpack hitting the floor or whatever it is, Mike oblivious. And so, I mean, you're making the normal average noise that a normal human being makes when you walk into a room. Mike's oblivious. And so whenever you'd just like, you think he knows you're there and you're like, hey, Mike. I mean, it's just like, nah. I mean, the guy was just always like, in that state of like surprise, state of freak out. Now, unfortunately, that works against Mike because eventually it got to the point where it's like, could you, can, is it possible just to see Mike do this? And I, I admit that probably wasn't the right mentality. Um, Lord, forgive me, Mike, wherever you are. Um, but, but Mike was like in a perpetual state of, of alarm. That guy was never on guard. He was seemingly always in a state of surprise, no matter how much noise you made. And when you come to verses 12 through 19, here in chapter 4, apparently there was something similar going on with the believers of, of Asia Minor, revolving around this idea of being surprised. See, as Peter is wrapping up his thoughts on the theme of suffering, he recognizes that there's a lot of people that are in a seemingly constant state of surprise. A couple weeks ago, we talked about this. There were the unbelievers who were surprised that these new Christians, these born-again believers, were not joining them in the things of sin that they used to. And so Peter's saying, listen, whenever you made a clean break with sin and you are now living a lifestyle that reflects your allegiance to King Jesus, your old friends are in a state of surprise. It's like they're shocked that when they come and invite you to go do what you used to do and you say no because I'm a believer now, I'm a Christian now, I'm not going to go and join you in this flood of sin. Peter says these people react with just sheer surprise. 
And as just as much as they are surprised at you in your clean break from sin, Peter challenges his listeners. He says, don't match their surprise at your clear break with sin with your surprise of suffering as a Christian. See, you're you're going to react to suffering in some way. Don't react to suffering with surprise. Don't react to suffering as though something strange are happening to you. Rather, react to suffering with this mindset. React to your suffering. React to trial. React to affliction with joy, not surprise. See, Peter's going to issue a call that believers are to rejoice in their suffering. You're going to say, he's just going to flat out state this in verse verse 13. Rejoice in suffering, rejoice in trial. Believers are to rejoice in their suffering. And with a statement like that, the obvious follow up question is why? Why? And Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us the answer why. And he gives it in a twofold way. The first truth he gives is this. The reason why believers are to rejoice in suffering is this. is because you must recognize there is purpose in suffering. There is truly purpose behind your suffering. The other pillar of truth that he gives to support this idea that believers are to rejoice in suffering is this. Not only is there purpose in suffering, but there is blessing for suffering. So, so like two pillars of truth, Peter comes along in verses 12 through 19 is going to say this. You must recognize and know this. There is purpose in suffering. There is blessing for suffering. And these two truths allow me to make this statement. Believers are to rejoice in their suffering. So let's turn to that first thought, purpose in suffering. There is purpose in suffering. We've got to remember now, Peter is wrapping up his letter, okay? He's drawing to a close. We've only got two more weeks after this, and Peter is he's putting the bow on the package. He's turned the corner, and he's, he's heading toward home. And before he gets there, what he's going to do is he's going to touch on the subject of suffering and trial and affliction one last time. And as he is wrapping up his letter, he's going to deliver one more round of encouragement to these Christians. The believers of Asia Minor were facing various forms of verbal suffering because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And in order to help them, Peter's going to build healthy biblical categories for the suffering they are facing. And the first thing he does to encourage them one last time in their suffering is he's going to say this to them. Do not be surprised by your suffering. Look in your copy of Scripture at verse 12. Peter writes this. Beloved, do not... Be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Do not be surprised by suffering. See, when a believer goes through a trial, they are not to see their trial as something strange. They are called to not be surprised by their suffering. So apparently these believers in Asia Minor had a category for suffering, but it was a faulty category. It was a category that was, could be defined like this. We believe in suffering. We have a category for suffering, but we think that suffering is abnormal. 
So when they found themselves on the receiving end of suffering in a trial, they were apparently reacting with surprise. They were apparently reacting with thoughts that something strange is happening to us. I, I can't believe that we find ourselves on the receiving end of being mocked and maligned and blasphemed for, for our faith in Jesus Christ. So therefore, Peter, Peter beckons them. He calls them. He's wooing them to adopt a new way of thinking. The, the call to not be surprised was Peter's way of ascribing normality to their situation. See, what they were experiencing was actually a normal part of life. Do not be surprised. Rather, you are to see the purpose behind your suffering. See the purpose in your trial. See the purpose that's in your affliction that you're experiencing. And you really see that with that middle phrase there. So, so in verse 12, when Peter says, Do not be surprised as though something strange were happening to you, he comes along and he's trying to ascribe normality to their situation by saying this, you must recognize that when a fiery trial comes your way, it comes upon you to test you. This is the language of purpose. He's ascribing reason behind why they're suffering what they're suffering. According to Peter, the purpose of suffering trial is to refine and test believers, See, at first glance, when you read this, do not be surprised at the fiery trial, the way fiery is describing trial, we often draw this conclusion. Well, what the kind of trial, I mean, there's trials and there's fiery trials. There's trials and then there's like severe persecution trials. There's trials and then there's like what the, the, the believers in, in other countries go through when they're, when they're beheaded or when they're tortured or when they're set on fire or they're killed or their buildings are taken. There's, there's trials and then there's fiery trials. That's true, but that's not quite what Peter's getting at here. When he uses the word behind fiery, the word that we get fiery, what he's saying is this. There are those things in our life that are refining trials, trials that come to us like fire to refine us, to test us, to prove us pure, to, to make us true. You guys have all seen it before, surely on YouTube or some video where you, guy, you have a man who's a metal worker and he has a, has a lump of gold that he's found. And what he wants to do is make it pure. So what does he do? He sets it in a, um, a crucible, right? He sets it in something that's going to take that piece of metal hard and he's going to set fire to it. He sets the fire to it to refine it so he can take that solid-state metal, melt it down into a liquid, and when it comes down to a liquid, all of the junk and the impurities float to the top. That's called the dross, so that he can come and take the dross away, remove it, and then he can let that liquid gold melt or let that liquid gold go back to a solid state. And so now you have the same piece of gold, but it has been tested it's been purified. It's been refined by a fiery trial, and it's come out tested and proved to be more pure than when it first went into the crucible. So, too, we experience refining trials, as Peter's argument. These fiery trials are allowed. These fiery trials come into our life to test, to prove, and to grow our faith. This is nothing new. Peter has made this argument at the very beginning of his letter back in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. He says, in this you rejoice, in your salvation you rejoice, though I acknowledge right now for a little while it has been seen necessary that you are grieved by various trials. Why? Why are you grieved by various trials? Why is it necessary that you suffer fiery trials? 
various trials for this reason, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, illustration, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter is revisiting an idea that he's already said earlier, and he has that exact same idea back of his mind of gold that's refined by fire to make it more pure. Trials come into our life with this purpose in mind. See, this is a categorical shift that Peter wants us to have. I mean, this is just admittedly a different way of thinking, right? Peter is pressing something onto us that is just almost foreign to modern-day evangelicalism. He wants us to have this mindset. Suffering is not a sign of God's displeasure in your life. Suffering is not a sign of his absence. Rather, suffering and trial is God's ordained means for your growth in Jesus Christ. Suffering and trial is God's ordained means for your growth in Christ. And when you hear that, I mean, it's almost like a mind melt. Because we try to do everything within our power to avoid suffering and avoid trial. And the chorus of Scripture, you see this in Philippians, you see it in Romans, you see it in Colossians, you see it in the pastoral letters that Paul writes to Timothy, you see it in Hebrews, you see it, you even see it in James where this, this chorus of Scripture comes together like this and says this, don't flee from trial and suffering, but recognize this, God's ordained means for your growth in Christ-likeness is actually through trial and actually through suffering. No place quite sums it up, quite like what Peter is saying here, like James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Listen to what James writes here to the believers who are suffering in his day. He says, count it all joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Notice that he couches this in the terms of certainty. He doesn't say, count it all joy, my brothers, if you might someday in the future bump up against a trial. He doesn't say that. See, James is operating with a category of biblical realism. He understands that the fallen world that we live in means you will experience suffering and you will experience trial. Count it all joy, my brothers. Think this way. Have this mindset. Have a mindset of joy so that when you meet trials of various kinds, know this, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So James is making an argument here. He says when trials of various kinds come into your life, When the testing of your faith comes into your life, it is creating something. It is producing something. You once did not have steadfastness, but this testing of your faith has produced some steadfastness. Then another trial of various kind comes along and produces more steadfastness. And then what he's saying is trials of various kinds, testings of your faith, becomes like a steadfastness machine producing more steadfastness. Producing more steadfastness. Producing more steadfastness. 
And then he says, don't let this steadfastness drift, but let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the implication is this. If this steadfastness was not in our life, we would be imperfect. We would be incomplete. We would be lacking something, but the way we move from lacking something to lacking in nothing, the way we move from incomplete to being complete, the way we move from being imperfect to perfect is this. When steadfastness comes into our life, having its full effect, and the way that steadfastness comes in your life is when you experience trials of various kinds. See, trials are something we need in our life. We see trials and we see suffering and we see affliction as things we should do everything in our power to avoid. But James says that rather than being an interruption to God's work, trials are part of his plan. Without the suffering and trials we so dislike, James says we would remain immature, incomplete, and deficient as Christians. Trials help us become more mature and more complete until we lack nothing. That is a paradigm shift in thinking. A shift in thinking that only comes around by the aid and the equipping of the Holy Spirit. See, God, we have to understand this. We have to understand that the suffering and trial that exists in your life right now, the thing that you are experiencing whether it's a small little trial or whether it's just like, man, I am staring at this hideous monster of suffering that just seems like it's taken up residence in my spare bedroom. And it is the thing that is just constantly causing me heartache and constantly causing me sorrow. And it is just seeking to undo me. You hear the promise of Scripture saying this, this suffering, this trial that exists in your life right now is actually there to mold you into the image of Jesus Christ himself. And to assume that suffering and trial are abnormal leads us to actually draw dangerous conclusions about God and about suffering. See, armed with a faulty way of thinking, we are often blindsided when suffering and trial come because we think we've crossed some cosmic line with God and now he's punishing us. When in reality, this blindness, it leads us to pray for our comfort. We, we cry out, God, I, I thought suffering is abnormal. I didn't think my life was supposed to be a life experience of seasons of trial and affliction. And so when you have this faulty category for where suffering looks like in your life and then just a humdinger comes out of nowhere and it just smacks you right in the face, there you are blindsided. And what does it lead you to do? It actually leads you, God, do anything you can to take this away. God, please just make it go back to normal. Make, it, make this thing go away. This blindsidedness leads us to pray for our comfort. And when, in fact, you pray this way, what you're actually doing is attempting to pray your way out of God's ordained means for your growth in Christ. See, God knows what's going on in your world God is not aloof to the world that you live in. And see, and see this needs to be said here, right? Because so, so Peter's not sadistic. He's not deriving some like weird pleasure from trying to tell people to like go and hunt down suffering. 
See, God is not a sadist. God isn't getting some divine jollies over the suffering and the trial that are going on in your life. God is a realist, though. God knows exactly what is going on inside your world. And I I know no other greater place in Scripture other than Romans chapter 8 where these ideas of suffering and the way God recognizes what is going on in your world come together and inside the pain of suffering and inside the pain of trial and inside the pain of affliction, God comes along and he speaks with purpose and he speaks promise into the pain and the suffering and the trial that you're experiencing. In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes this, verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Just listen to the language that Peter's describing to describe the world that you and I live in. This is a world that's been subjected to futility. This is a world that is in bondage to decay, that's in bondage to corruption. This is a world that we live in that is groaning together in the pains of childbirth. And in the midst of futility, in the midst of corruption, in the midst of pain, God, through Paul, comes and speaks this glorious promise inside the futility, inside the corruption, and inside the pain. We know that for those who love God, All things work together for good. This isn't some promise that's talking about some magical Shangri-La off in the distance where there's no pain, there's no corruption, and there's no decay, there's no suffering and no sorrow. This is a promise that is spoken in the midst of this fallen creation where there is futility, where there is corruption, where there is pain. We know that for those who love God, all things, even the suffering and the trial that we experience in the midst of this fallen world, will work together for good. Why? For those who are called according to his purpose. There is purpose that God is wielding inside these things for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. See, that's the good news promise. Because you're in Christ Jesus, Jesus has said this. God has said this through Christ. I foreknew you and I predestined you to be conformed into the image of the Son. And that means even within this world of pain, this world of decay, this world of futility. Rest assured, there is promise There is purpose. There is good news inside your suffering and your trial and your affliction. I will not let this drift. I am not aloof, but I am living very much in this world. There is purpose in your suffering, and this purpose is for your conforming. God is on a mission to conform you and mold you day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year into the image of Jesus. And the primary way, the primary way he does this is through suffering and affliction and through trial. See, he's calling these believers to not be surprised at the fiery trial as though something strange were happening to them. 
If they're to not be surprised, that's couched in the negative. Is there anything positive? If they're not to do this, are they to do something? And the answer is yes, and that's what we see in verse 13. Do not be surprised at a fiery trial as though something strange were happening to you, but do think this way. Verse 13, rejoice, rejoice in suffering. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. See, suffering for the sake of Christ is meant to lead to joy in Christ. Suffering for the sake of Christ is meant to lead to joy in Christ. The idea is that these believers in Asia Minor were on the receiving end of suffering because of their allegiance to Jesus. Jesus saved them, and they made a clear, clean break with sin and said, I don't know much, but I do know this. Jesus is my king, and what he's asked me to do, I'm going to do it. And that clear break with sin means that they have now given their allegiance to King Jesus. They have now aligned with him. And in their aligning with Jesus, people are now coming along and insulting them and mocking them and maligning them and blaspheming God and blaspheming the gospel because of the the, the righteous conduct in their life, the good conduct in their life that is is a way to show Jesus in their life. Now, it sounds insane... But according to verse 13, when you find yourself in this situation in so far as you share Christ's sufferings because your life looks like Jesus' life, you are actually to respond with this suffering and trial with rejoicing, not surprise. There's a great piece of the book of Acts that exemplifies this perfectly. When you go, if, man, if you just haven't read the book of Acts in a while, man, I push that in front of you. If you're just standing around going, man, I want to be reading my Bible, but I don't know what to read, man, I push the book of Acts in front of you. There's an account in Acts chapter 5 where the apostles have been told, don't preach and teach, don't talk about Jesus. So what do they do? They preach and teach and they talk about Jesus. They get thrown in jail. The angel of the Lord comes along, releases them from prison, and it looks right at the apostles and says, go right back where you came from, head back into the temple, and start talking about the life that can be found in the name of Jesus Christ. So they go there, and what happens? What happens is what you think has happened. The religious leaders of the day who are all in a bent and all twist say, man, we thought we told you guys to stop doing this. Haul them out. So they grab them. They haul them before the council. And they set them in front of all the religious leaders. And a lot of the religious leaders are saying, okay, we can eliminate this problem really quickly just by killing these guys. Let's just dispense with sticking them in the public jail. Let's just kill them and snuff this movement that is saying Jesus is co-equal with God. Jesus makes people, let's just get rid of this thing right now. And one of the religious leaders of the day steps up and goes, okay, hold on. We need to bring some sane thinking to this. Let let us not accidentally put ourselves in the place of being against God. If this thing is not of God, it will just come to an end. So let's just rest in that. But if this thing is of God, let us not strike these people because then, in essence, we're striking against God. So the people are like, oh, what are we going to do? We're not going to kill them. You just told us to leave them alone. So they draw this conclusion. Well, what we need to do is we need to beat them, scold them, And tell them to get out of town. So what do they do? They called in the apostles. They beat them. Charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then let them go. What do the apostles do? They left the presence of the council rejoicing 
that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Rejoicing. Not because they just had like a really good stake at like, loan, like a, at a Texas Roadhouse. Not rejoicing because they just got a pay raise. Rejoicing. These guys have torn clothes rejoicing. Bruises because they were just beaten rejoicing. Blood coming out of their skin because they were proclaiming the name of Jesus and they go with, I mean, they're fist bumping, they're chest bumping, I mean, they're high-fiving, they're going, yes! Why are you guys so excited? We just got beat up for Jesus! And you're supposed to read that account in Acts chapter 5 and go, that is insane! What kind of mindset would lead somebody to the place where their life so reflects Jesus Christ that it invites suffering and invites trial and then they receive suffering and they receive trial and then they walk off going, yes, praise be the name of Christ that these people didn't beat us up because we were jerks and knuckleheads, but these people beat us up for this reason alone. They so saw Jesus Christ in our actions and our thoughts and our words, and for that, we rejoice. This is a different way of thinking. And Peter turns around and says, Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, so that you may also rejoice and also be glad when his glory is revealed. See, the command to rejoice and be glad in the midst of your suffering It roots itself in this. Your union with Christ links you to share in Christ's sufferings, and suffering for the name of Christ confirms that you're actually a Christian. The the idea that Peter's driving at here in verse 13 is this. He's he's basically saying, listen, hey, hey, just remember Jesus Christ. At his first coming, when he first came, what what was the the marker of Jesus' life? Suffering. Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He lived amongst the poorest of the poor. Suffering was the lifestyle of the Savior. But at his second coming, when he comes back riding on the clouds in his full-blown glory, it's not going to be second verse, same as the first. It's going to be this. There is going to be a revealing of majestic, mind-blowing, sovereign glory when Jesus comes riding in on the clouds. First coming, Jesus suffered. Second coming, It'll be a full-on revelation of glory. And Peter's argument is this. Insofar as you suffer for the sake of Christ now, when you are so aligned with the name of Jesus, suffering for the sake of Jesus now, this proves that you are actually in Jesus Christ. Therefore, rejoice and be glad. So, so far as you align with Christ in his suffering, you will be a partaker. You will share in his glory when his glory is revealed on that future day of his second coming. And Peter says, you can rejoice. Don't flee. Don't run away from suffering for the sake of Christ. Rejoice and be glad. Jesus teaches the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who are before you. See, to share in Christ's sufferings here means that you will partake of Christ's glory when he is revealed as the victorious king. You must understand this. There is purpose in your suffering. Do not be surprised at your suffering. 
You can rejoice in your suffering. But thirdly, believers are purified through suffering. Look at verses 17 and 18. See, the language changes a little bit, but basically he's going to just reteach everything that he, he was just talking about. Peter says this, the time for judgment to begin at the household of God, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Then he dips back into the book of Proverbs, and he supports what he just said with an Old Testament reference. If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? See, God cares for his people's purity. God cares for you to be molded and conformed into the image of Jesus. He really does. God did not save you through the work of Jesus Christ so that he can be like, man, that was an easy one, and then just set you on the corner over here and go like, sit tight, don't do anything, I'm coming back soon, just hold on. Jesus saved you from wrath, saved you from the penalty of sin, and saved you to be conformed to the image of the Son Jesus Christ. See, God cares for his people's purity, and he is using the purifying judgment of suffering and trial to grow his people away from sin and grow them toward himself. So Peter's teaching the same idea, but he's just using a, a, a different verbs, different verbiage right now, a different lexicon, a different way of talking. He's now couching this idea of suffering and trial in this, in this, in this thought and this theme of judgment. God is using purifying judgment, the purifying judgment of suffering and trial to grow his people. For Peter, the idea of judgment does not involve the destruction of the godly, but their refinement and purification. So that goes all the way back to what we were talking about earlier, this idea of refining and gold and refining trial. See, the judgment that begins with God's people purifies those who truly belong to God, and that purification comes through suffering, making them fit for their future inheritance. But yet... Peter draws another implication out of this same truth. If judgment is coming, as sure as the day is long, and it begins at the household of God, it is good news for those who are in Christ because this refining judgment actually purifies them. For those who just flat out disobey the gospel, this judgment is actually going to bring not purification, but it's going to bring condemnation. If those who are going to be saved are purified and judged by suffering, then the result of those who reject the gospel will surely be a greater punishment. The picture is this, that God has began judging within the church and will later move outward to judge those outside the church. Christians are strengthened and purified by his judgment, but those who have decidedly disobeyed the good news of the gospel will reap condemnation for their disobedience to the gospel. See, there is purpose behind your suffering, and it is this, your growth in Christ-likeness. Not only that, but there is blessing to be found in your suffering for the name of Christ. Blessing to be found in suffering. So in verse 14, Peter rounds the corner, and he's going to just riddle off three short, just little ideas. And they look like this. Because he, he, he's been saying these things beforehand. And again, remember, he's putting the bow on this package of, of suffering, this theme of suffering. The first thing he's going to say is this in verse 14. There's actually blessing in insult. You are blessed when you are insulted for the name of Christ. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 
Again, going back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, Peter apparently had the Sermon on the Mount on his mind because we hear the same things from Jesus. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. There is a world in which Jesus is set up and when you so align yourself with him and are insulted because you so stand for Jesus Christ in the way you think, what you say, what you do, that it has actually put you in the place of being on the receiving end of blessing from God. To be insulted for the name of Christ shows that these believers actually lived like and talked like Christ. And this was a sign that the spirit of glory and of God rested upon them. But Peter wants us to make sure, right, somebody's going to hear that. What? I'm being insulted and that means I'm blessed? He comes along and says what he does all the other times. Listen, just because you're, if you're a knucklehead doing evil, living like a sinner, and suffering because you've been living in sin, what does he say? No blessing for you. Verse 15, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer as a matter. Listen, the blessing is if you're insulted for the name of Christ. Blessing doesn't come to you if you're just being a knucklehead, okay? And then he rolls right out of that into verse Verse 16, and says this, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him be about these two things. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed that he's suffering as a Christian, but do let him give glory to God in the name. Do not be ashamed, but do give glory to God. See, here in verse 16, the call to renounce shame focuses on actions that would be shameful. So a believer might be tempted to the shameful act of denying Christ to avoid suffering or by by failing to persevere in the faith, right? This isn't hard to see. Someone can draw the conclusion, well, I see that the Christians in this town or the Christians in this church or the Christians in this nation are suffering. Therefore, I will not align myself as being a Christian. Therefore, I will avoid suffering. And Peter says, don't operate with that kind of mindset. Don't love, don't choose the pathway of avoiding Jesus, disconnecting yourself from from Jesus, but instead do this, have this mindset. By way of contrast, you can glorify God by confessing and praising his name publicly, the very name that is bringing you insult the very name that is bringing you suffering. Do not be marked as a person who travels the path of shameful actions in the midst of suffering, but actually be one who is marked as traveling the path of glorifying God, even aligning yourself with Jesus by calling yourself a Christian, aligning yourself with believers, because even if they are suffering for the name of Christ. This is Peter's last statements about suffering. So the inevitable question is, how do we respond to what he's just said here? If it's true that believers are to rejoice in suffering, believers are called to rejoice in suffering by seeing that there is purpose in suffering and blessing for suffering, how can we respond to these things? And I think we can respond by at least these three ways. See, The first way that we can respond is this. In suffering, entrust yourself to God. In suffering, entrust yourself to God. Look at verse 19. 
This is the summary statement that summarizes everything he's been saying about suffering, going all the way back to chapter 3, verse 13, when he started talking about suffering. So he's been talking about all of these, these various things, all these various ways in which people are suffering for righteousness' sake, suffering because they're doing good, suffering because they align themselves with Christ, suffering and arming themselves with this way of thinking, recognizing that if I align myself with Jesus, mocking and insult are going to come my way. And what is the call from Peter in the midst of this? He boils it all the way down to one sentence. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The call of Peter to you and I, the right response in the midst of suffering is this, entrust yourself to God. Your suffering is according to God's will and your suffering is for your growth in Christ. God is the faithful creator. Now there's, there's something just majestically unique wrapped up inside that phrase because this is the only time that God is referred to in this way. In the New Testament, faithful creator. And what Peter's doing is he's loading this image for us. God is creator. He is sovereign. He is ruler. He reigns over all things. And this fact alone makes him a viable source, a viable place that you can run to in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your affliction. God is creator. He is sovereign. Nothing happens apart from his will. But not only is he sovereign creator, but he is faithful and he is true. And nothing will happen to you that will undo you. God will not allow by his will anything into your life that will undo you. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You think that this thing is going to undo you, but God knows that this thing will not undo you. Do not pray your way out of this blessing, but flee into the arms of Christ and entrust yourself to the faithful creator who says, I have allowed this in for you. This thing will not undo you. I'm seeking to grow you into the image of Jesus. And trust me with your pain, and trust me with your fear, and trust me with your worries, trust me with your doubts. In suffering, we can entrust ourselves to God because He is the faithful Creator. Second, in suffering, I think the command of the Scriptures, the command of Peter at least from his book that he wrote to the believers in Asia Minor is this, in suffering, you're to look to Jesus. You may have heard everything I've just said about what the call is for us to entrust ourselves to God, but you may still be standing there lost and unsure on how you entrust yourself to God in the midst of suffering. It's admittedly a fearful thing. It can be an unnerving thing. If you're lost and unsure on how to entrust yourself to God in the midst of suffering, my, my encouragement, a right way to respond to everything we just heard is to look to Jesus, recognize that Jesus is your example of what it looks like to entrust yourself to God in the midst of suffering. Peter wrote, if when you do good and suffer for it, 
you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. What's the example he left? It was this. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. So what on earth was Jesus doing when he was being suffered and when he, when he was suffering and he was being reviled? He did this. He continued to entrust himself to God who judges justly. Jesus is the supreme example of a man who at the height of suffering entrusted himself to God. When Jesus was pinned to the cross, and when Jesus was being mocked, when Jesus was being maligned, when Jesus was being insulted because he was the Christ, when Jesus was suffering because he was the first Christian, when Jesus was sharing in the sufferings that were coming to him, Jesus showed us what it looks like to entrust himself to God because there he was bleeding out. He'd been run through. He's been mocked. He's been maligned. He's had his beard pulled. He's been spit upon. He has just been made a complete buffoon in front of all the people. And what does Jesus do in the midst of this? The seconds before he dies... Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The same word that we see in this verse, 419, is the same word that Peter, that Luke gives us from Jesus. Into your hands I am entrusting myself in the midst of this moment. And having said this, he breathed his last, and the wrath of God was poured out upon him for, for the sins of mankind. In that moment, Jesus showed us what does it look like at the height of excruciating suffering. What does it look like to entrust yourself to God? It is this. You rest wholeheartedly with everything that you have into the arms of your Savior. Lastly, the third way I think we can respond is this. Let me just be, be honest here before, before I say this. I, I debated on whether or not... To, to give this last point. Because it's just sort of a hard question. And I've been asking myself this question all week. And as I looked into the mirror of this question, the reflection that came back just wasn't always a pretty one. Because the temptation for you to, when you hear what I have to hear, is for some of you, it's going to spin you out into guilt. And I'm asking you not to spin out into guilt to not spin out into self-loathing or self-beating up. But in the light of the question, to actually run to Christ. Because see, this is the haunting question for me. Am I, are you right now suffering for Jesus? Are you suffering for Jesus? Have you so aligned yourself with Jesus Christ in every sphere of influence that you find yourself in this world to where people look at you and they mock and malign you or they desire to have nothing to do with you or there's just these little ways that they get at you merely because... I'm not talking about you don't have any friends to eat out with lunch because you're a jerk. I'm asking this. Do people so see Jesus inside you that they don't want anything to do with you? Do you find yourself sharing in Christ's sufferings and being insulted for his name? If, the question, if you answer that yes, then there is a mountain of just great blessing that you will find in verses 12 through 19. 
If the answer to the question, do you find yourself sharing in Christ's suffering and being insulted for his name, if the answer is no, the question is, why not? Why? And that was the question I didn't want to quite answer myself. Why? Because too often, what's true of verse 16 is true of me. I operate within the realm of shame. And if I speak up right now in this moment, that means these people are going to know I'm a Christian. Ah, I'm not quite ready for that yet. And so then you just shut your mouth. Now, it is possible. It could be that you are doing what Peter is exhorting us to do and that you are not in a place of suffering. I think Peter leaves room for that. You go read chapter 3, verse 14, but even if you, sh even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake... It is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. I think Peter leaves room for this. There will be times, there will be seasons when you live your life like Jesus and you're just not going to suffer for it. You're not going to experience trials over it. I think Peter does leave room for not suffering for righteousness sake. That, that could be where you're at. I don't want you to, to think that's not an option. But if you ask yourself this question... Do you find yourself sharing Christ's sufferings and being insulted for his name and you go, no, we have to understand this. Another possible option could be this, that your life just simply doesn't reflect Jesus. Your life doesn't reflect Jesus. You have no clear break with sin. You proclaim one thing with your mouth, but your life debunks everything you proclaim with your mouth because your life does not look like Jesus. You proclaim the name of Jesus with your lips, but there is a disconnect between your confession and your life. Your actions counter the profession of your mouth. Now listen to me, man. I wish I could sit down and just come and hold your hand and look right into your face right now because I have been asked these questions before. And it spun me out into some of the strangest places. Usually extreme guilt and usually extreme self-beating up and turning into myself, going, God, it's true, I'm not doing this, my life doesn't reflect, and then I just sort of curl up into a, a spiritual ball, and I go off in the corner, and I cry and just sort of suck my thumb, thinking, God, what am I doing? You're right. And then I just live in this world of just, just self-focused, navel-gazing. That's not my goal for trying to do this right now. I'm not trying to spin you out into navel-gazing, looking upon yourself, but I believe I'd be doing a dishonor to the Scripture if I didn't somehow press home this question to you. Does your life reflect Jesus? Do you take a stand for Jesus? Do you at times go, no, I cannot go do this thing because I'm a follower of Jesus? I will not laugh at this joke because I'm a follower of Jesus. I will not say this thing because I'm a follower of Jesus. I will not treat my wife this way because I'm a follower of Jesus. I will not act this way toward my children because I'm a follower of Jesus. I will not cut this corner at work because I'm a follower of Jesus. Knowing the moment you do that, insults, ridicule, mocking, and maligning will come your way. We cannot leave this option off the table. The reason why you do not suffer for the name of Christ, that you are not suffering as a Christian, insulted for the name, the name of Jesus, is because your life just simply doesn't reflect Jesus. So the question is, what do you do in that moment? What if your answer is like, yeah, 
The reason why no one's asking me or questioning me about Jesus is because I just seek to avoid that whole idea of my life. I'm, I'm compartmentalizing. I love Jesus on Sunday mornings from 10 to noon. But nobody knows I'm a follower of Christ because I don't live like a Christian. What do you do in that moment? I think it is this. First, you entrust yourself to Christ. You entrust yourself to Christ. You either entrust yourself in salvation because you're not a Christian. Some of you are answering this question. Man, I can tell you right now, I know the answer to this question. I am not suffering for the sake of Christ and being insulted for his name because I don't even care about Jesus. I'm not even a Christian. So the first thing we need to address is this. If that is why you're answering no to you suffering for Jesus, the first thing that you're called to do according to the Scriptures is entrust your life to the Savior who died upon this cross to make you right. Christ suffered. The good news message of the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ suffered on the cross once for sins. Righteous Jesus for unrighteous you so that you might be brought into a relationship with the living God. If you answer the question, I do not share in Christ's sufferings and being insulted for his name because I am not a Christian, your first response is to entrust yourself to the saving world of our Savior. Second way that you can respond to this is this. You entrust yourself to Christ in confession, not in guilt. Don't go running to the corner and fix yourself. Don't bear shame like some sort of, some sort of mantle, some sort of cloak where you're just willing like, man, I'm going to wear shame like it's like it's my game. That's just what I do, you know, and I'm going to wear it around. I'm going to walk around like this. I'm going to own it proud and loud. No. Don't own shame. Don't live in guilt. But what you do in that moment, if you say, man, I I know my life doesn't reflect Jesus right now. What you don't do is run off in the corner and fix yourself and come back. What you do is you turn and you flee to the arms of Christ. See, the gospel of the cross is good news for those of us who need to entrust ourselves to Christ and salvation. And the good news of the cross is good news for those of us who need to entrust ourselves to Jesus in confession, confessing to him, my life is not what it ought to be. Please do your redeeming work in my life. Bring me to the place where I rid myself, falling on my knees, running to the cross and the Savior who died upon that cross. Have your way in me. Grow me. Mature me. Do it as you see fit. And then don't be surprised if our sovereign Christ comes and brings a trial and a suffering into your life to grow you in the very thing that you recognize in the very place that you need. See, believers can rejoice in their suffering because there is purpose in suffering. And believers can rejoice in their suffering because they will be blessed for their suffering. So as the band comes to play... How do you respond to the teaching this morning? I think your response looks like this in at least two ways. One response is for you to come and you're just going to worship Jesus. And I bid you come worship Jesus. Stand and lift your arms and and worship as the band plays. Another way that you can respond by worshiping Jesus is by coming and taking of the Lord's Supper. See, when you come and you take of this little juice and you take this little piece of bread, what you're doing is you're standing on your tippy toes and you're shouting something. 
What you're shouting is, as that blood poured out of Christ's body, as Christ's body was broken and bruised and mocked and maligned on the cross, that God was doing something. He was reconciling humanity to himself through the body and through the blood of Christ. And I am professing to the world on my tippy toes that that is true of me. And that's a right response in light of the the preaching of God's word. And so I invite you, if you are a Christian, come, respond in this way. Proclaim to all of those around us, yes, Jesus has saved me through his body and through his blood. But if you're not a believer, my, my urging to you is don't come and respond by taking of the Lord's Supper, but your response is in a different way. Your response isn't just to sit there and be quiet and hope all this wraps up real quick so that you can just run out the door. The right response for you is to bend your knees and to entrust yourself to Jesus Christ who did make a way for you to be reconciled to the Father. The blood of the cross is the reconciling power for humanity. You can be redeemed, you can be restored, and you can be forgiven today by responding to the good news of Jesus Christ. And so I encourage you, respond in this way if that's where you find yourself this morning.